The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. In Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verse 8, it says this, As the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father God, we, we thank you for your great mercy and your forgiveness. And we thank you for your son, Jesus, Lord, that we have that forgiveness through his sacrifice on the cross, Lord, that has given us hope for eternal life with you in heaven. Father, I pray this morning that as we come to your word now, God, that you would open our eyes and our ears to see and to hear the truth of the scripture. God, use the teaching of your word, Father, to change us, to be more like your son, Jesus. God, we thank you for your love your mercy, your forgiveness, your grace. We thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. How's everybody doing this morning? Welcome back from camp, guys. Y'all had a great week. Madeline got in the car, and I said real quickly, one to ten, what would you give it? She said, ten. I said, awesome. Ten's good, right? She goes, yes. But I said, and then she goes, there was a couple eight and nine events, but it was all overall a 10. I said, well, that's good. So uh, we're glad that they made it back. We thank you for the student leaders, the adults that went. That's an exhausting trip, but uh, I know it's well worth it. You guys invested in our students' lives, and we're very grateful for that. I want to show you a very special book that I have. This is a book that has been written by the founding fathers of our country back in the 1700s. There are chapters in here written by Thomas Jefferson, by George Washington, by John Jay, by John Adams, and several others, Alexander Hamilton. And in here, they tell us all about the country, about what to expect if, if we get off track and how to, what's going to happen in our country. And a lot of what they said has already come true. And, and for the things that they haven't come true, they mention things that are going to happen. And so you can read this book and know a lot about what's going to happen in our country. Now, that's an amazing claim to say that I have a book written in the 1700s by the forefathers of our country. Now that I've made that claim, what are you going to do with this book? Some are going to read it. And as you read it, are you thinking to yourself, really? Do we really have that book? Is that really what this book is? How do you know if this is really written by our forefathers in the 1700s and it has all that incredible information? You read it, you look at what they say, you compare it with what, if, if supposedly Thomas Jefferson wrote this, you might look at other things Thomas Jefferson wrote that we have records of. You compare to see if it stacks up. You would, you would probably certainly uh, ask me one very important question. You're a nobody. How did you get this book? And I would have to explain how I got this book. The point is, that's an amazing claim. But if you've studied it and decide that this is really written in the 1700s by our forefathers, you're going to really study it. And you're going to really think about it. And you're going to really try to take the message of the book more seriously. Well, I'll just tell you, this is just the oldest looking book I had on my bookshelf. This is not that book. I know you're shocked to find that out. But this, this is a word from God. 
And I seriously am making that claim to you. That this is God's word. But what should you do with that claim? Certainly you should read it. You should study it. You should consider what it says. Decide for yourself whether you really think this is the word of God. Perhaps if, you, if you're really super uh, scholarly and you go to the libraries uh, and look at material that, of other documents and look at the textual evidence that supports whether this is really a consistent, faithful copy of previous document, ancient manuscripts and look at textual criticism and apply, uh, devote your whole life to it. Or you could just read some books of some textual critics and look at what they say about what they've done to validate that this really is the Word of God. But if you go through that process and you Consider critically if this is the word of God and you conclude that this is the word of God, that's crazy to think that we really have God's word. If you really become convinced that this is the word of God, a book that God gave to his people that has been passed down through the ages and that we now, we have in a pretty leather, I guarantee you I've got five or six, seven, eight of them on our office shelves that we just moved into and we all probably have multiple copies of them. But really, if this is the word of God, the implications are astounding. So what I want to do today is begin our series that we're going to do this summer. We just finished. This sermon's a little different than normal. I was worried that it would be the greatest snoozer sermon of all the history of Norris Ferry. And the first service said, no, it wasn't. So that's good. I was worried because this is not how we normally do things. Normally, I'm preaching verse by verse through the Bible. We just finished a massive study through Matthew. And now for this summer, we're doing a little different. We're doing a topical study on the Word of God. And so today, I want you to see... I want you to leave here with confidence like you've never had before. Confidence that what we have really is the Word of God. And then next week, we're going to look at the authority of it. If, God's, if it's really God's Word, then it carries God's authority in our lives. And then we're going to look at the clarity of it, that it really can be understood. And the necessity of it, how desperately we need to know what's in the Word of God and the sufficiency of it. That There is no other book out there that you have to know beyond the Bible to know what God wants you to know. And then we're going to look at what it actually says in just some big pictures of the the covenants that are in the Bible. There's some major covenants that, that are in the story of the Bible that make sense of here's what this message of the Bible is. And so that's our summer series. And so today we're going to begin by looking at what... The, uh, what the Word of God actually says about itself as the Word of God. And so that is what's called a circular argument. What is a circular argument? Well, if I say, well, this is the Word of God, and you say, well, how do you know? And I say, well, because the Word of God says it's the Word of God. That's like your kid coming home and saying, little Johnny's the strongest man in the world. Well, how do you know who little Johnny said he is? And you're like, well, I'm going to need a little higher authority than that. So 
there's a little something unnerving about the circular argument. It feels a little wrong for me to come to you and say, well, the scripture says the scriptures is the word of God. And so you go, well, yeah, how is that right? How can that be good? Well, I'll tell you that any document, any book, anything that claims to be the supreme authority has to be caught up in what is called this circular argument. For example, let's say you're an atheist and you believe science is the highest authority. And I say to you, well, how do you know science is the higher authority? You're not going to say because the Bible says so, because that would make the Bible the highest authority. You're going to say because science proves that science is the highest authority. If you believe the Quran is the highest authority, you're going to appeal to the Quran as the highest authority. If you believe the Book of Mormon is God's word, you're going to, you're going to go to the Book of Mormon. You can't appeal to a higher authority if you're claiming that what you have is the higher authority. So what do you do with this conundrum we're in? You deal with presuppositions, big fancy word that just means when we come to the Bible, we come with beliefs. We all come. When you go to those other sources, thinking that those are the supreme sources, you bring presuppositions to them. What do we come to the Bible believing? We want to be honest and open about that, put that on the table, and then consider the evidence and see if any rational person would come to the same conclusion. What we do when we come to the Bible as Christians is we presume that God exists and he is the God that is described in the Bible and that what he says in the Bible is the supreme truth for our lives. Now, is that rational to believe? And so what you do is you deal with presuppositions. You weigh the evidence and then you look at that evidence and say, is it rational? Would anybody understanding with rational thinking come to that same conclusion? Like if I'm dealing with an atheist and they say, well, I don't believe that's the word of God because I don't even believe in God. I would then say, well, let's talk about that. Look at creation. And I might try to open his mind to the idea of God through the existence of the creation and the majesty. I would use that as an all expenses paid to go to the mountains or something. You know what I'm saying? And I'd say, why don't you pay a trip for me to the mountains and I'll show you God, how he has created. Might look at the birth of a human baby and the complexities of life and, and art and beauty and the sense of justice that we demand justice. Well, where does that come from? Where does the appreciation of beauty come from? Where does the desire for justice come from? Surely the complexity of design argues for a designer. Now, if there is a God, I would say, wouldn't it make perfect sense for the God who created us to speak to us, to communicate to us in a manner that is consistent and reliable and can be preserved for generation after generation? Wouldn't you just consider reading this book? Because perhaps you read it, you might just find the power that God has in his message to you. So today we're going to weigh the evidence that is out there that suggests that this is, that God gave a word to his people and that that was passed down to us. So we're going to do two things. First, how did God give his word to his people? And then how do we know that this is an accurate copy of that? Are y'all asleep yet already? All right. Raise your hand if you feel absolutely certain before this message you could tell me how we got the Bible. Because I know we're about the Bible, but... How many of us really think we could stay with great certainty how we got the Bible? A few of you who've been in the cohort are giving me that look because we've worked through this material. That's right. All right, so, good. It's not going to be the biggest snoozer sleeper ever in the history of Norris Ferry Church, I hope. So, what are we going to do? First, 
we're going to say, how did God give this book to his people? And then we're going to say, how do we know that this is a reliable, trustworthy copy of that book? Let me ask God to help us. Lord, would you please help us this morning? Would you give us confidence that what we have is literally your word? Because once we grasp the fact that this is your word, the God of the universe has written us a book. The implications will be tremendous in our life. So please work confidence in our heart as we consider the evidence. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, how God gave his word to his people. We're looking at the history of the composition of the Bible. I think one of the most important things to remember when you think about how this book came into being is that it took place over time in the context of a community of living, breathing, thinking, examining, scrutinizing people. In other words, this Bible did not come to one man sitting on a rock in the wilderness or in the desert who heard something or felt something or thought something and wrote something and then came down and said, God told me this, hands us a book, and we all drank the Kool-Aid. That's not how we got our Bible. Our Bible took place over time in the context of community. And we see this process develop. Let's begin with the very first five books that are in your copy of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That is called the book of the Pentateuch or the book of five written by Moses. The book itself claims that Moses wrote it. Now how did this come about? Look at Exodus 17, 14. Look at one example. God tells Moses, so in this interaction, God with his people, he's interacting with them. He's showing himself to them. He's doing miracles. They're crossing the Red Sea. They're doing the plagues, and he's doing all this stuff. And then he he looks at Moses, and he says, now, Moses, write this down. And this is where it's recorded, 1714. God tells Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. So he told Moses, write it down. Write down what you're seeing. Write down what you're doing. Write down what I'm saying. Make sure you keep copious notes about what all is going on. And then we see in Numbers 33.1, we read this. Moses is recording detailed records of the history of God interacting with his people. It says in that verse, These are the stages of the people of Israel when they went out of the land of Egypt by their, by their companies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses wrote down their starting places, stage by stage, by the command of the Lord. And these are their stages according to their starting places. In other words, as they were interacting with God, all the stuff that you saw in the Ten Commandments and Charlton Heston for all of us old folks, all that stuff that was going on, All that was recorded, God said, Moses, write it down. Write it down in detail. Record every bit of it. This is what happened in stages. And so Moses was carefully recording the historical events of what took place when God was interacting with his people. In Deuteronomy 31, verses 22 and 26, we read this on the same. So so Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. Now, how many of you could could sing a song? If I just started singing a few words, the words would come, right? 
That's what songs do. Songs are a way of memorizing things. And so Moses wrote a song about the history of all that God did in Israel. And they would sing the song, and it was their way of memorizing the God-inspired interactions with his people. And then in Deuteronomy 31, 24, when Moses had finished writing the words of this law, which is your first five books in your Bible, when he's finished writing the words of this law in a book, to the very end, he, when he finished the very last part of it, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. So when he finished his book, he gave it to them and said, hey, keep this in a very special safe place. Now, what was in the Ark of the Covenant? that the community of God's people had. There was another first original document that was called the Ten Commandments. We see in the scriptures, it says that God wrote that with his own finger. And do you know that when you etch something in a stone, it can last for thousands and thousands and thousands of years? That's how we know some of the oldest ancient documents, just a, just a scratch of a calligraphy or, a, or an image on a stone that still exists today. And so they kept those Ten Commandments inside the ark. And now Moses, you know what else is in the ark? Manna. We know that is. That is pastries, donuts from heaven in a jar. They, they put them in the jar and they put them in the ark. God said, preserve that. There's a staff in there too. Aaron's staff is in there. And so all these things were evidence of God's real interactions with his people, of God's miraculous interactions with his people. And Moses writes his book recording all that he did, the plagues, the exodus, and all that, and, and the law, and his will, his instructions, all that he gave them. And he put it in a book, and he said, now put this by the ark and keep it, and don't lose it. This is an important book. And that, that ark and those scriptures became the center of the life of God's people. The temple and the scriptures became the center, the very presence of God among his people. Later on, when the temple was destroyed, the scriptures become the presence of God among his people. And so we see this is a very careful, scrutinizing, historical, eyewitness, evidence, account of God interacting with people, with hundreds of thousands, with millions of people who saw these interactions, who knew it was recorded in scriptures, who when it was read to them didn't go, what, that's not what happened. But when they heard it read to them, they said, yes, that's our God. We'll follow that God anywhere. We'll go to battle against anyone who says that our God's not the one true God who created the universe. And so this com community of people interacting with live eyewitness accounts of God, recording it carefully in historical documents, have these words that they consider to be the word of God. It's so convinced of it being the word of God that in Deuteronomy at the end of the book, we read about Moses. He took the first five books. He took the first version of the Bible, the little first portion of your scriptures, and he held it up and he said this, See, I have set before you today life 
and good, death and evil. This book is life or death to you, he says. Verse 16, if you obey the command of the Lord your God that I have commanded you today by loving the Lord your God, walking in this, his ways recorded in here, keeping the commandments recorded in here, his statutes and his rules in here, then you shall live and you shall multiply and the Lord God will bless you in the land that you are entering as you take possession of it. This is the key to life and death, to blessing, to curses. This is it, Moses says to his people. And then Moses died. And Joshua was chosen as the next leader of God's people. And what does Joshua do as he's about to enter into the land? In Joshua 1.8, he holds up that book. He went to the ark, grabbed it out, and said, This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, for thou then thou shalt be successful in all of your ways. But no other book is this book. This is the one true book. This is the word of God. Memorize it, know it, sing it, live it, breathe it, follow it, because this is the only way that we will have life and blessing in the land. This is how we will know God's will. And so this is how it developed throughout history as God interacted with his people. The people took records. They took note. They were convinced this is God's word. But then you get to Joshua, Judges, Ruth, the historical books and the prophetic books. And you say, well, what happened then? Well, God continued in the same way. He had them write. And we see in our scriptures, it mentions it in Joshua, mentions it in Samuel, mentions it in Numbers, books like the Annals of the Kings, the book of Jashar, the book of the, the Wars of the Lord. And so these were historical books that they were recording events. God said, so it was recorded in the book of Jashar. So it was recorded in the annals of the kings. So it was recorded in the, in the war of the Lord, in the wars of the Lord. And so all these, these events that God was doing, these wars that God was miraculously giving them victory with his little bitty army beating incredible kingdoms. And they knew it was God who was doing it. God showed up and God did this. And they're being recorded in historical records. Year after year, all these events are being recorded in, in historical records. And then similarly, God would speak to the prophets, and he'd speak to the people through the prophets. These were unique people in, in God's plan that he would use to say, I want you to give a word to my people. Kind of like, not the same, but kind of like preachers. They would say, here, say the word of God to my people. Jeremiah was one of those prophets. Listen to this verse to tell you how this process worked, how they preserved these documents, and they ended up in your Bible. Listen to Jeremiah 36.1. Listen, this is historical. I'm sure he's got Annals of the King opened up, and he's writing it, and it says, In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today. So from the days of Josiah until that very day, God had been speaking to Jeremiah. And what has Jeremiah been doing? Well, what would you be doing if God had been speaking to you? Write it down. He wrote it down. Then God said something else, and he wrote it down, and God said something, and he wrote it down, and he kept a carefully, carefully, careful written record of what God said. And then in Jeremiah, it says, then God came to him and said, now take all that I've been telling you and put it in one book, one scroll. And that's the way it worked. The word of God was developed in community 
by eyewitnesses with reliable source documents that backed up what they said, that anyone who read it had experienced and would say, that's not how it went. But instead, they were convinced, yeah, that's it. That's what God did. That's what God said. That's what we experienced. And so he wrote, Jeremiah wrote it down in a scroll, and those scrolls became books, carefully recorded documents from source materials that were trustworthy, provided by eyewitness accounts. That's what you want if you're testing out a book. It's like John, Hammer sa- John Selhammer says, it's like the way a modern documentary is done. In a modern documentary, we see them all the time. Usually they're trying to argue that the Bible is not what we think it is. But they, they do what? They look at a document that's a historical document, and they look at another one, and they look at another. Now, what kind of interesting story would it be just for them to put those on a screen and just let you figure it out for yourself? It wouldn't be good. They, they put document document, document, and then they connect all those documents with a story, with some music in the background. They do an intro, and they do a conclusion, and the way the editor kind of puts it all together and what he highlights and what he mentions and what he doesn't mention, he makes sure that his point gets across. And so at the end of the documentary, you have one coherent story that's been using these documents to make the point. Selhammer says that's how the Bible works, that all these documents of historical evidence, eyewitness accounts, and and clear, reliable records of what God did among his people. You have this document, this document. You have a poem of Moses. You have a song of Moses. Or you have this word from Isaiah and this from Jeremiah. And it's all brought together in one coherent story. And you know what that one coherent story is that the, the, editorial, the editorial board who put the Bible together, you know what the one coherent story is? There's a Messiah coming. And so your Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Bible, which is your Old Testament, is is one coherent story looking for the Messiah. How do I know this? Well, you read it and you see there's, there's someone who wrote after Moses in Deuteronomy. Listen to Deuteronomy, uh, what says in 34 verse 7. Now, Moses wrote Deuteronomy, we said, but someone wrote in 34 7 this. Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And Moses was 120 years old when he died. Moses didn't write that. He's dead. So the community of faith took Moses' book and updated it and kept it going by as God interacted. And they brought it together with an editorial process. And they said, Moses died. Joshua became the leader. Joshua took Moses' book and he led the people. And the rise and fall of the people in Judges as they lived according to the Bible that they had. And as they obeyed and had faith, God blessed them. And as they didn't, they had failure. And we see the story unfolding. And we see another place of an editorial word. It says in Deuteronomy 34, 10, and there has not arisen a prophet since his death in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. What, is the, what are they saying they're looking for? There has not risen a prophet like Moses since. What are they looking for? Looking for a prophet like Moses. And so we see what's going on in the community of God's people. They're, they're listening to God. They're following his word. He's revealing himself as the God of Israel is the God who created. 
He's the one who gives us his will for our lives. And what the community saw was they were waiting for a Messiah, for a promised king, a prophet like Moses, who will be the son of Abraham, who will be the son of David, who will be the one who brings about God's kingdom, who will be the sacrificial lamb of God, who goes into God's holy of holies like the priest did, but he is the one true priest. He offers his own self as a sacrificial lamb of God. He is the unblemished lamb of God because he is the God-man who sacrificed his own life to give as the forgiveness of sins. And so the whole point of the Hebrew Bible is who is this Messiah so I can have salvation and enter into the kingdom of God. And so that's how we got God's, the Hebrew Bible. And the whole point of the Hebrew Bible is that it points to the longing of the awaiting, the awaiting, a long-awaited Messiah. And what we see over time is this Hebrew Bible <clears throat> began to shape the identity of the people. That they define themselves according to the people of God, the people of God's word, the people of Yahweh. And his word defined their ethic and their purposes and their mission and the very reason they exist. And so he, when, when the temple was destroyed because Babylon came in and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed their temple, when they're like, oh my gosh, I thought heaven, I thought his kingdom was about to come about. The word of God is the what gave them hope that no, it's not time now. Daniel extends that time frame out and says, no, it wasn't now, it's coming in the future. And so the, the word of God is what gave the people of God hope for the coming kingdom that will be ushered in by the Messiah. And so we see the people of Israel carefully scrutinized every letter, every word, every document, and decided this is the word of God. It defined them. They were so convinced of it being the word of God. Did you know that when Abraham walked into the land of Canaan, it just happened to be that's when the alphabet was invented? In Canaan? So that these records could be kept? Did you know that the Hebrew language originally did not have vowels? They only had consonants. Now, what does that mean? Well, you need a lot of context clues. What if I said... Uh, this morning, I walked into that DR. Excuse me, I'm not a little DR country. I walked in that DR. Do you know what I'm talking about, that DR? No vowels? What am I talking about? The door. So you need context clues. But if I'm doing a whole paragraph like that with no vowels, you have to really know that document. You have to have it carefully memorized and carefully taught to you so that you have it memorized before it's ever written so that then the consonants are only memory aids to what you have memorized. And that's the documents that were passed down to us by a people who studied it and memorized it so well and so carefully that they had consonants as simple memory cues so that they could sing it and teach it and pass it on Generation after generation, this was not a process taken lightly. 
And so this is the Hebrew Bible that was passed down to us. And there was an official list that kept track of which books are in and which books are out called the canon. The canon is a word that refers to the standard used to decide what's in and what's out. And something that we see that is not in is, with all due respect to our Catholic friends, we have a lot of people who have come from Catholicism, and so I, I want to explain why we don't have the Apocrypha in our Bible. And I've only got time to just tell you four reasons. Number one, they do not themselves claim to be part of God's Word. Number two, the Jewish community who produced the Apocrypha did not consider them to be God's Word. That came in like 1500, just a few years ago hundred years ago. And number three, Jesus and the New Testament writers never mentioned them, never quote from them. And number four, they contain teaching that is not consistent with the rest of the Bible. And so that's, a sim- that's an example of how that was decided not to be included. And that was done with every book not in the Bible that was, people were claiming should be in the Bible. So should we have great confidence in the books that we have as the Old Testament? Well, I can tell you this much at this point. They certainly believed that they had the Word of God. They passed it down generation after generation. This is God's Word to us. It defines us, and it gives us purpose and meaning and hope and direction. What about the New Testament? New Testament was developed in a very similar fashion. Jesus came to those Jewish people that had the Hebrew Bibles, and he said, I'm that long-awaited Messiah. I'm bringing the kingdom of God. If you trust in me for the forgiveness of your sins, you will be forgiven, you will be cleansed, you will be declared a saint, you'll be given credit with God for my righteousness, Jesus says, and you will be a part of my people. And people saw him, and they heard him, and it says they, they heard his teaching was unparalleled authority. No one taught like this man. They saw his miracles. They saw him healing people. They saw him doing crazy things. Nobody does that. And he's claiming to be God, the living word of God, the fulfillment of the Hebrew Bible. He's building on the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, saying, it's all about me, he says. And they believed it. And you know what helped them believe it? They saw him alive after he was dead. The resurrection. And they said, this is God. And everything he said is true. And he accepts the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, as God's word. He didn't quote any other scriptures. Jesus and the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, 295 times. Not once did they dispute it. Not once did they say, I don't think that's the word of God. They said, that's the word of God, and Jesus is the one it's talking about. They didn't quote from one other book ever. Not one. None. Can't get any other resources in there. It's one book, the whole Old Testament, the one you got. And then Jesus Claims to be the Messiah, the Old Testament promised. He claims to forgive sins. New Testament writers, apostles who walked with him, talked with him, learned from him, scrutinized him, doubted him, said, I got to touch the scars. I got to see this for myself. I'm no idiot. I'm not just drinking the Kool-Aid. I got to make sure this is real. And they did. And they saw him alive after he was dead. 
And then Jesus chose them, handpicked them out. You've been with me. You've heard me. You've walked with me. I've taught you. I'm giving the Spirit of God. Now I want you to write the rest of the Scriptures. I want you to finish the book. And so they did. And the apostles, all who wrote the Scriptures, were with Jesus, saw the resurrection, except for just a few writers who they handpicked and carefully guarded what they said. And so the Gospels was written by those eyewitnesses. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts. Now, Acts is a record, a history record of God's work through people who believed in Jesus. Now, listen to what Luke says about how he wrote his books. Careful, scrutinizing process. He was a medical doctor. Dr. Luke said this, Inasmuch as many have underwritten to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. I have carefully measured everything. I've done the research. I'm using eyewitness accounts. I'm telling you, this is what happened. And he wrote it. And all the rest of your letters in the New Testament are actual historical documents, letters that were written to individuals or to churches saying, this is how you should live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they kept them, they preserved them, they copied them, they circulated them, and it took on the shape of the community. The community said, this is what identifies us, this is what shapes us, this is what gives us hope, this is what gives us purpose, this is what defines our mission, this is what defines our ethic, this is what defines our values. This is God's word to us, and we should treat it like that. The new and the old come together. The old covenant, it's not like old, outdated, and new. It's old covenant before Jesus, and Jesus brings in the new covenant, which is the fulfillment of the old. And so there's one book that God's people have always said, this is God's word, and it has defined them and shaped them, and they were so convinced that it was God's word, they died for it. You don't do that for a lie. If you're going to die for it, you're going to believe it's true. So I think it's clear that what we have, they say, they clearly believe it to be God's word. Now, how did they get it? Let me just briefly how in the sense of historically how, but now spiritually how. John 14, 25 says this. Jesus said, These things I've spoken to you while I'm with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So the Holy Spirit enabled the writers to write everything that God had told them. They had their books out. They had their sources out, eyewitness accounts, and the Holy Spirit enabled them to remember what Jesus said as they wrote. 2 Timothy 3.16, I think it's one of the verses we're going to memorize. All Scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. What does that mean exactly? Well, I think 2 Peter 1.16 helps us. Listen to what 2 Peter says. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths like Zeus in the Greek time. He says, We're not writing myths like that when we tell you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of it. We're not talking about some legend or some myth. I saw it, he says. He says, I saw it with my own eyes. What is he talking about? He's talking about the mountain of transfiguration. Who was on the mountain? 
Peter, James, and John got to go up with Jesus and saw this crazy thing going on with Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And you know what happened? God said about Jesus, not about Elijah and not about Moses. Jesus, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And Peter saw it with his own eyes. And he saw Jesus resurrected. And he said, this is him. He's here. And listen to what he says about how he relates to the Old Testament. Verse 19. And we have the prophetic word Old Testament, we have the Old Testament scriptures more fully confirmed. I see Jesus who is fulfilling the Old Testament. I see him with my own eyes, to which you will do well to pay attention, like a lamp shining in a dark place until the dawn, day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture. That word Scripture is referring to the sacred Scriptures, the Bible. No prophecy of Scripture. The Scriptures do not come from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit brought these writers of the Word of God, all that historical process I just described, the Holy Spirit carried them along. God breathed His Word in such a way that it is considered, the content is considered God's Word, not man's. The apostles had such a unique place in the church that to lie to the apostles was considered equivalent to lying to God. When Ananias lied about the offering in the church, excuse me. When Ananias lied about the offering in the church, he said, Peter said to him, when you lie to me, you're lying to God. And God zapped him dead on the spot. There was a unique role that they played. In 1 Corinthians 14, 37, Paul says, the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. Paul says, my words are not my words. These are from the Lord. This is a command from the Lord. In 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, we see the church was already collecting the scriptures, the letters, the writings, and <clears throat> excuse me, already considering them to be the word of God. And listen to this. It says, Peter says something funny. He says, there are some things in Paul's writings, these letters that we collected from Paul, there's some things in Paul's writings that are really hard to understand. And you're like, I read Romans, and he is right. That is very hard to understand. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. But listen to what he says here. They twist them, Paul's writings, just like they do the other scriptures. They twist Paul's writings, which are scriptures, just like they twist the other scriptures. So the church had Paul's writings. That's like 80% of your New Testament. And the church had them and considered them scriptures just like the Hebrew Bible was scriptures. Clearly, they considered Paul's letters to be scriptures just like the Hebrew Bible. So the community of faith carefully scrutinized this material, collected it together, put together a coherent message that points to the long-awaited Messiah who would forgive sins and save God's people and enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus shows up, and the New Testament is convinced, all the writers are convinced, the community of the faith is convinced, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. And they believed it so much, they died for it. They were crucified, brutal deaths, because they were like, this is truth. 
I can't recant it. I can't twist it. I can't change it. It's God's word. And that's what happens when we're convinced that it's God's word. So we know they had a Bible that they thought was God's word. How do we know that our Bible is a good copy of that? I got negative four minutes to tell you. So perhaps you're convinced that they thought their Bible was the word of God. But you're wondering, how do we know that this Bible that we have in our hands is a trustworthy copy of their Bible? Very briefly, textual criticism is the science of ancient texts. There's brilliant scientists who are devoting their entire life to studying ancient texts. And the Bible is one of those ancient texts that they are giving their whole lives to and with great technology, they're able to do this. There are thousands and thousands of handwritten manuscripts. A manuscript is a handwritten copy of our Bible. Thousands. Most other documents have one piece of a document that says this is is original because we can see from this little fragment, Homer's Iliad, we can see this little bit. That's real, but nobody questions that because he's not telling me how to live. But we have thousands of manuscripts, handwritten manuscripts that are found in Egypt, are found all over the world. And all those copies, those manuscripts are brought together. And with technology, they're able to lay them all out, compare them, study them, analyze them, see if they're faithful copies, to see if what we have in our hands is really a trustworthy copy of what they died for. And the answer is absolutely if there's any little difference, it just glows. It just shows, whoa, whoa, there's a little change here. There's something. And it's very, very, very rare. And what do they do with that? They go, shh, don't tell anybody. It's not what they do. They put a note in your Bible. And they put a little footnote. And you read it. And you, What does that asterisk mean? And it goes down there. Well, the earliest manuscripts didn't include this. That's what you do when you're trying to validate a document. Your Bible is the most trustworthy, most reliable, most dependable copy of any ancient literature ever written in the history of humanity. And to deny that is to enter into the world of the irrational. Because any rational mind who would consider the evidence would say, this is clear. This is trustworthy. So I think it's clear today. God gave his word to his people. And he did it in a way that we can know it was carefully preserved and passed down to us. And I think it's clear for you and I to know today, we have a copy of God's word. This is God's word. What are you going to do with it? Think about that. God, the creator of the universe, who spoke us into existence, wrote us a book to give us wisdom, to know who he is, to know what he's done, to know what he's doing, to know what he expects, to know where to find hope, to know what happens after death, to answer all the questions that he wants us to answer. He has the authority to speak to our lives. 
He does it with clarity and with necessity. We need to read this book. And this is the only book. This book is sufficient for all that we need. So what are you going to do with it? Our church exists to study this, to teach this, to understand this, to sing this, to memorize this to live it, to obey it, to understand it. We, we have small groups that gather after our big group of talking about it. We meet in small group to study it further, to pray about it, to ask God to give us hope, to find hope in this, to understand our sins are forgiven in Jesus because this, God's word says this, to know what the future holds, to know what happens when we grieve the death of a loved one. All of that is in here. And we're not doing it this summer. Community groups are over. So we'll start in August, right? And the people said, no, let's start now. It's God's word. So what are we going to do? We're going to memorize it this summer. Not one, but 10 verses. We're going to memorize 10 verses. And those of us over 40 are going, oh, no. (laughs) 10 verses. Are you kidding me? I can't remember 10 words. You can. You can. So here's what we're going to do. Found the coolest app. An app is this little thing on a cell phone. If you don't, we'll have a paper version for you. But if you have phones with an app, we're going to give you an invite to an app called Scripture Typer. And it is the coolest app to help you memorize Scripture. And we're going to, Kevin Wilson is going to put all this out there uh, on on the media. On the same way he makes our normal study guides available, he's going to put it all out there. But Download the app, go to the Norris Ferry group, and we have the 10 verses out there that we're going to learn together this summer. Here's what we want you to do. Partner up with someone, grab coffee together this year, this summer. Use this summer to memorize scripture together, quote it to one another, encourage one another. Use this little thing to to learn scripture together. 10 great verses. I promise you. I had someone when we were talking about planning this summer, the Lord was just confirming, because I was thinking this is going to be a snooze fest. It's going to be the worst sermon ever written in the history of man. And I was worried about it. And God brought one of our members and said, you know, I wish I was one of those people that when I was talking, I could just quote scriptures. I said, all right, thank you, Jesus. I heard you. So we were going to memorize scripture this summer. Just 10 verses. It's not hard. And it is hard, but you'll get it. It's worth it. And we're going to put out their Bible reading plans. Just a different way to read through the Bible. Gives you step by step. Read this verse today. Read this verse tomorrow. I'm doing a one-year Bible plan. I'm in my third year of the one-year Bible plan. (laughs) And that's okay. That's how it works. No, I'm not doing it three times. I'm just still trying to get through it the first time. But that's what we're going to do. We're going to read the Bible this summer. We're going to get everyone on Bible reading plans. Find the one that works for you. Start memorizing those verses of Scripture. And then guess what's going to happen? Everything I said today about document and textual criticism and historical sources and all that ain't going to matter. Because you're going to experience the power of God as you read it and memorize it. And it's going to change your world. It's going to rock your world. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you will rock our world. As we read your Bible, as we consider it truly the word of God. I pray, Lord, that those today who have never trusted you as Savior will know that the point of the Bible, your word to us, is to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And I pray that all over the room, people today will do that for the first time or be reminded of, yes, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And may we be a people of the word. May we 
learn to treasure your word as what it is. It's your word to us. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for saving us through Jesus, and thank you for giving us your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.